Like that one, the push that's coming up, that was incredible. There's no way I'm going to go a whole year and like not make it. <laughs> yeah. But we should talk about that on this podcast. Yeah. I'm yeah. definitely down for that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Straight Up Book Club. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about The Vanishing Half. We're so excited about this one. Mm-hmm. By Britt Bennett. I'm very excited. We posted on our Instagram, um, or you posted on our Instagram, of like the book we were going to read, it being The Vanishing Half. I've never gotten this many messages. People are so excited about it. Just like when I, when I reposted it on my Instagram, I mean, people were just like, oh, I read it. It was so good. So I'm also excited to talk about a book that has other people excited. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, well, one, it's getting picked up by like HBO and they're, I think it's, it's something that people are talking about right now. And it's also just so fucking good. Like, it's so good. I think I read it in a couple days. What do you think of the name? Like what was your pre and post reading it? So pre-reading it, I was, you know, confused and intrigued. And I think we've talked about this in the past, the importance of a good name to really hook you in. And this was so successful there, right? I didn't know what the book was about and it made me want to read it. And I think the book art had something to do with that too. (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah. And then I started to read it and it just works so well on so many levels, right? Because... There's the level of, you know, her being the twin, um, and she is just, you know, gone. So, yeah. But then there's also the level of the half of her personality, well, not personality, but her history that she's sort of erasing, and that's gone as well. And I thought that was a really interesting take in how it sort of cascades through her, through the generations, too. It's so beautiful. And you're right, it encapsulates so much. There's... There's a moment in the book when Stella talks about how um, trying to draw up any memories from her childhood, she's actually unable to separate those from from her sister. And she it said something about like, maybe I can find it. Um, but essentially all of her memories were like cleaved. Oh, she couldn't share a memory of her youth without also conjuring up Desiree. All her memories were cleaved in half. So to your point what you were saying about her her other like part of her identity it's almost like one part of her life is the is that vanishing half like the life up until she decided to um like pass for white i'm not sure if that's the how we're supposed to phrase it but not sure uh, i mean that's how it was spoken of in the book but um yeah up and up until that point when she decides to to pass for white she can't actually like keep that as a part of her she can't share that with her husband she can't share that with her daughter because they can't know these things about her so it's uh yeah it's it's interesting because the vanishing half is like herself it's her sister it's like half of her life like it's uh it's such a good name i love it it was so quick to get through this too it's written in a way that you know you, you want to find out more you want to know where Stella actually went. You want to know what her life ended up being like. And I think it was really smart as a writer to get into Desiree's life first mm-hmm. because that was the one that we were maybe less curious about because it just seemed more um, close, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas Stella was just um, like a fabled figure almost. And then you're like, oh, I wonder really what how she made her life big and she did manage to make her life really big it starts with her returning to mallard 
Desiree. That's how the very beginning starts. And it's interesting that like Desiree was the one who had chosen to leave in the first place. And it was almost like it was painted as if she had brought Stella with her. And Stella was the kind of meek one of the two. She was a little bit more shy. She Desiree seemed to be the the kind of I don't want to say like rough one, but she was a bit more stubborn and like strong-willed. And her mother saw that. I think everyone saw that difference between the two of them. So Desiree's the one who wants to leave, but then she's ultimately the one who comes back, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. But yeah. it definitely it it is interesting how it the the book starts with the return, and then you because then it makes you wonder about what's going to be happening afterwards. What's going to, why did she return? Why did they leave? You know, where's the other one? So it's a, it's a, it's a great way to, to set it off. And the jumping between the different timelines and the different characters, I, I think was just so, so well written. So one of the bigger themes was perception and masks. And it's interesting. Like, so, so to me, this book is about how others see you and how how you see yourself lines up with that you know do you accept it is that how you want to be seen or do you reject it and work to be the person that you want to be to live the life you want to be on a surface level that's what it is right so the subplot then is really interesting as well because it's kind of buried in there you know reese and uh jude Mm-hmm. Reese is doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the vanishing half applies there too, right? So yeah, I just thought that was interesting because I didn't, as I was reading it, didn't draw that parallel quite as strongly as now when I'm looking back at it. No, that's a great point. The exact same thing happened with Reese. He uh, he left his history behind and it wasn't something that he could ever return to. And his history isn't something that people know. It's really, it's only Jude and I think their one friend, Barry, maybe, who might, who might, I don't know if Barry knows fully or if just more so has an inkling, but um, the only people who know about his history are himself and Jude, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. And it's the exact same thing that her aunt is experiencing in regard, well, you know, not the exact same thing, but uh, in regards to that part of your history being covered up and you can't talk to anyone about it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah. No, that's actually a great point. And, and when you're reading, you know, you look at the cover, it's like these two women kind of embracing this really like artsy um, fashion. And this is the vanishing half. So you automatically think of like the two sisters, but you are, but that's, that's such a great um, point. Like it, it's really in, in both of these different topics. So what do you think, like, what do you, like, I don't even know how to ask, but just like, what do you think of it all? Like, what do you think of, of like Desiree's situation her leaving deciding to come back Stella deciding to kind of move on like in this whole uh, theme of like identity what what do you think of that as a whole it's a lot of deception too right and it's it's a lot of um just cutting people out and what I kept coming back to was what kind of sacrifices are you willing to make to live the life you want Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. because so what motivated Stella she oh and I found what I think is the point where she found her motivation it was when you know she's going out with her boss and I think they're outside somewhere and she says something about how whenever she was seen as Blake's girl, she realized how um, 
sorry, I'm not going to find this. I'm just going to try to remember. When she was being seen as Blake's girl, there was like a level of protection. She was being seen as white and she was, she almost got like a snippet of what her life could be like if she spent it as Blake's girl. And by, by virtue of that being white, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like a bit like did a really horrible job explaining it, but I think once she saw that, she she understood that that was a sacrifice that she was willing to make to cut her family out to mm-hmm. achieve that level of uh, what she thought might be peace. You know, um, she didn't really as calculated and practical and thoughtful as she was in her life. I don't think she gave it enough thought like how much i'm gonna have to give up or never talk about again um in exchange for this feeling of protection like nobody nobody Mm -hmm. bothering me and this is also during a time when like she's not just identifying as or or passing as white like it's also illegal at this time too like this is a time when you know they have sections um specifically for anyone who's black like uh i remember there was a scene when they were ordering food and i think it was like an alleyway entrance and you weren't allowed to order food you weren't allowed to enter the restaurant you had to get your food from like the alleyway entrance Mm -hmm. that's one example i remember from the book but i mean there are others as well like she would have been um i don't know if she would have gone to i imagine she would have gone to jail if she had been found out so it's like a whole it's not just like the deception and them finding out the truth it's like it's like this this would have ruined her her career because she had a, she ended up becoming like a professor in university mm-hmm. um or like a TA or something like that so it's it's like a whole other i mean and which is where the deception originated i'm sure i mean why else would you you know have to have to deceive but the the way she got that job working for Blake she i think ticked the box or didn't tick a box so she, you know, was pretending to be white there. Mm-hmm. And it, it, there's an interesting parallel there because she did that. Desiree told her, you know, you have the same skills, so why not? It's just a box, just, mm-hmm. you know. And so she took Desiree's advice and got the job because she was qualified. It was just the color of her skin mm-hmm. that, you know, was going to stop her from it. And so there's that. But then when it comes to Desiree herself, when she's, I think, later trying to get a job as a fingerprint analyst mm-hmm. at, um, it's a town close to Mallard, it's after she's gone back, they won't accept her application or they won't give it the same uh, consideration because they see that she's from Mallard and they mm-hmm. know the community in Mallard, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, it's interesting how Desiree doesn't take her own advice and the impact of that on her and the impact of taking Desiree's advice on how Stella's life changes. And it's interesting, too, that Stella, like, this, like when she goes and ticks the box when she's applying for that job, um, that's kind of almost her decision to start passing for white. But even before that, there was that time when she... Um, she went into a store when she was a kid. Oh, yeah. So it, there was so that kind of deception started a lot earlier, and that it almost seems like that sparked something in her when she was a child. Um, it was a store. I think only like white people were were allowed to even go were allowed to go in, and she just kind of went in. I don't know if she stole something or if she just went in to see what it looked like, and nobody said anything to her. Mm-hmm. And when she left, she just kept 
I can't remember the line, but it was almost like her heart was racing. She couldn't believe that she got away with it. And then there was another line afterwards that said something like, that was when she realized that there was nothing to being white. It was just a boldness and knowing that you belonged there. Something along those lines. Like, like so it was, it, I think she realized early on that it actually would be quite easy for her. Um, and then, so that was like her first testing of the waters. And then when she checked that box for that job, it was like, that was her decision. Like the, the testing had, had happened earlier. This was the moment when she was like, okay, this, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, and that was the beginning of the rest of her life, really. And even when she went into that store, yeah, no one who was white, like recognized her. Um, but the security guard did and he sort of give, give her like a look being like, oh, I'm good for you. You know, and that do you think that was her. real, or do you think that was in her head? Oh, good point. I just assumed it was real. I didn't think about that, but but to me, that's something she's held on to because she thought it was real, right? Mm-hmm. So so even later, when um, she's she sort of avoids being around black people in general because mm-hmm. she just assumes that they're going to you know like see her. Well, and her mom had said. When she was young, I think it was her mom had said, we, we always know our own. Or, yeah. I don't know if it was her mother or someone else, implying to her that even if you tried to pass as white, a black person will always know you're black. Yeah. Um, and so I think maybe she sometimes sees that and it might not actually be there. That's, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, I cut you off. Keep going. No, no, no. I, I think that's why she was so afraid of, I mean, she got really close to Loretta Walker, but she was always... You know, wondering if she she'd know, and she was like so surprised that Loretta never found her out. I think it hit her especially hard, or maybe I'm projecting, but when uh, her daughter Kennedy like said that slur to to Loretta's daughter, mm-hmm. and Loretta saw her as you know a racist white woman, mm-hmm. and Stella was just taken aback. Well, that happened at the end of her relationship with Loretta. And I'm glad you brought her up because I feel like Loretta is just another subplot that's fantastic. Because there was always that element of Stella that... There was a moment when she even said that she wanted to be found out by her. And I think that maybe Loretta was the first person in her life where she actually felt the most vulnerable and the most like she belonged. And maybe it was because it was the only person she ever... And I don't think that started at the very beginning. I think it was a very like um, tumultuous relationship at the beginning. Um, because she had actually said to her, she had said the N-word to her daughter at the beginning, and that's where her daughter got it from, was from herself, but Loretta wasn't there to witness it, because it was behind a closed door. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't want her to find find her out, but it was only when Loretta had invited her into her home to sit down with um, her, her, like, friends and sisters, and I can't remember what the exact words were, but um, she said something about everyone feeling so relaxed in each other's presence, and she didn't feel that way when she was with the white mothers from the, from the school or the community that she was living in. Mm-hmm. And I think she felt, maybe it felt a little closer to how she felt when she was a kid. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but I, I do think that she felt the closest to Loretta because why else would she kind of want her to know? She doesn't want her daughter to know. She doesn't want her husband to know. That would be detrimental to her. But there must have been an element of safety that she felt with her if she was okay with her like somehow knowing she would never actually say it Mm -hmm. so I think what happened was at the end when her her daughter said that and then Loretta looked at her as this racist white woman I think um, Stella probably felt 
like that was the moment that separated the two you know and she didn't feel that sense of belonging because how could she if she's it's it, it felt like that moment of like us us and them mm-hmm. um and i think that that's when stella not i'm not saying it's the same as being cut off from her sister when she was a kid but she now had that second time of being cut off from someone that she felt close to and like i don't think that relationship was reparable after that it felt like that relationship was sort of doomed to fail anyway because every time she went over she was lying to her husband about it and the neighbors were watching it's a gossipy neighborhood they were always sort of talking about it and when when stella had this holiday party they kind of brought it up and that's when it was all out in the open too there was no way that she would have been able to navigate that web of lies no that was probably the peak correct me if i'm wrong loretta was the only person that stella admitted that she had a twin sister to yeah i think so so. that was almost like the peak of the relationship i think it was almost like she had exposed herself too much at that point and then Mm -hmm. could only go down from there i guess like they they couldn't really how much more could she tell her without letting her life fall apart you know it was almost like she was testing the waters again like when she was a kid and she was in the store you know testing the waters there it was almost like she was testing the waters again with loretta you know kind of like at the time she was vulnerable because you know she was lying and now she's lying to loretta but she wants her to know the truth it's a weird like she was definitely testing her it felt like and i don't know i i did it was interesting to watch their relationship unfold though because it started with like hatred from stella's part and then kind of like an awkwardness and then it turned into this almost sisterly like they were chatting every day she was hanging out with her pretty much every day at that point mm-hmm. um, and people started talking about them which was very risky i think for stella because just based on all the things stella had set up to that point about you know not revealing any part of her history it yeah. felt like so unlike her to be doing this now so i think loretta did something to her or instilled something in her but do you think is it is unlike her because it kind of feels like she takes these like little risks and Good and point. then forgets about them because think about how when kennedy was a baby she just kind of let slip the town she was from she said mallard to her and then forgot about it and kennedy you know was a child yeah fine babies forget things but for some reason held on to it and probably mm-hmm. because stella refused to talk about her childhood her upbringing at all right so it probably grew to have this huge importance for Kennedy, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe something that might have faded away just kind of amplified. So all she remembered was that it had the word M in it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, to me, an, another example of, you know, taking a little risk and seeing where it goes and, you know, hopefully it doesn't come back to bite her. But it does in that situation, too. Right, because Kennedy ends up looking up the, the location and even though she saw other locations that had M in it, she knew it wasn't right. So, yeah. like, I think it was in her subconscious. It's interesting that you said that because there was a part at the end that I that really struck me. There's a moment when Stella kind of recounts the differences between her and Desiree. And as their children, and I think I mentioned this earlier, Desiree was kind of seen as, like, the strong-willed one. She was the one who was, like, a little riskier. I kind of imagine this, like, rough-and-tumble child, whereas Stella is, like, kind of the bookworm who keeps to herself and doesn't really, you know, speak very loud and probably doesn't care too much about being seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of the book, she's talking about um, the differences between her 
and Desiree. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Okay, page 234. And I think there is that part of Stella that liked being risky, but that wasn't her. She wasn't labeled as the risky one when they were kids. So it's like she couldn't really have that identity. So page 234, it says, um, sometimes being a twin felt like living with another version of yourself. That person existed for everyone, probably an alternative self that lived only in the mind, but hers was real. Stella rolled over in the bed each morning and looked into her eyes. Other times it felt like living with a foreigner. Why are you not more like me, she'd think, glancing over at Desiree. How did I become me and you become you? Maybe she was only quiet because Desiree was not. Maybe they'd spent their lives together modulating each other, making up for what the others, the other lacked. So I, because Desiree's personality is so, I mean, as they're, when they're kids, like almost like aggressive, Stella almost had to kind of balance that out. I think she saw them making up for what the other lacked. Stella taking these little risks was almost like her defiance against, you know, her childhood and her relationship with Desiree. And Desiree was the one who was being seen as the one who took risks, the one who, you know, had them both escape to New Orleans. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think you are right. I think she does kind of like taking them, but she's a little bit more chill about them. Actually, and I just remembered another part. There's a part, I think you're, you're absolutely right because there's a moment when Kennedy had, I can't remember what she did. She like, I want to say she had done drugs or maybe she had gotten really drunk one night and um, she got caught and her, mm -hmm. and then, and Stella's reaction, internal reaction was, I wasn't even that mad that she, that she had done it. Let's just say it was like done the drugs or, or, or got drunk. I was mad that she got caught, how like careless she had been. And doesn't she know that like, uh, what you're risking when you be careless like this? Like she's essentially yeah. saying like, I don't care. I don't give a shit if you take risks, but like be quiet about it. Like be, be good at, at hiding it from people. So uh, yeah, anyways, I think there are so many arguments in, in your case of saying that like, no, Stella loves to take risks. That's who she is, but nobody knows it i think that's also like part of the loneliness probably you know like mm -hmm. when you are that lonely you want to reach out in certain ways and sometimes those ways can be self-destructive so maybe that's what it was um yeah. i also love that you brought up uh the kennedy the things sh she thought about kennedy because there's a part a bit later as well that really struck me and it as you're saying it it just sounds so similar it, it was when kennedy decides to sort of go on this like world trip and find herself and then mm. stella's sort of like what do you mean go find yourself you know it's not like it's not like a part of you is hiding somewhere else like you're you're right here you just have to figure out who you want to be something something along those lines but it it's just so interesting that she has found this way of sort of uh formulating her own identity and she wants at least her own daughter to be able to follow the same sort of path and while like kennedy's unconsciously sort of latched on to how stella does that in other parts like maybe she's not so able to do it in this part what i mean by that is unconsciously kennedy has become this actress you know she loves mm -hmm. it she thrives on stage but but what she loves about it is being able to put on a different persona as she's developing that love she doesn't know that she's doing the exact same thing that her mom's doing right. but that unfolds later and kind of like helps bring them together perhaps I don't know. I think Britt Bennett is really good at creating these little like connections. Mm -hmm. Like how can how can I tie them together a little bit more, but still seem like subtle and far enough apart. Uh, Kennedy's such an interesting character to me because she's like your spoiled little privileged 
white yeah. girl. She's been given literally any, everything she could ever, she could ever ask for. But it seems like she wants so badly to just like know her mom more, and that's the one thing that she's not given. Mm-hmm. So, and then in the end, there's a part where Kennedy kind of realizes when she finds out that her mom has been lying this whole time. I can't remember the line, but it was like, "You showed love to me by lying to me, and I will show love to you by lying to you as well." Yeah. And so that's their relationship, and but it's it's also so astute that she kind of came to that conclusion as well. She's she genuinely believes that like in lying to her mother about her life and her happiness, and like she's she's actually um, showing love. I mean, that was how love was shown to her. So I guess it does mm-hmm. make sense. But that relationship's fascinating. Also, the relationship between Blake and Stella. Like, that partnership that's just so hollow. Yeah. And the fact that she has these dreams, like, on the regular. She always... That's another thing. Oh, my gosh. There's so many things I want to talk about. <laughs> but the, the dreams that she has of her father... Well, her father was taken away when she was a kid. And now she dreams that white men are going to come and take her away. And that's a recurring dream that she has. Like, she never shared that. Well, no, she couldn't share that with Blake. But can you imagine being in a relationship with someone where you can't share those kinds of traumas? Right. And what did you think of that relationship between Stella and Blake? Like, do you think that um, it started as a bit of a power relationship? Like, he was her boss. She was, like, a young secretary. And she was actually kind of embarrassed in the future about that being, like, their their story. That, like, mm-hmm. she was his secretary. It felt very, like, cliche to her. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, what did you think of the relationship as a whole? You're right. It it felt very hollow. It felt very background too. You know, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's kind of instrumental in getting her to this position. But there's not much there. He seems like you know that classic sort of what is this the 70s? But you know that sort of yeah. era, a husband in that sort of era where it's just like work is the focus, and then I'm gonna buy you these jewels, and that's mm-hmm. it. You know. And then I'm going to get mad at you for, like, trying to have a job that fulfills you later when she's um, trying to get her degree and then sort of get get her doctorate or something like that. He wants her to be busy and happy, but then doesn't want her to be busy and happy. Yeah. Or an so. intellectual. There was a moment when he, uh... no, she says about him that, he always saw intelligence as a means to an end and the end was always money and she felt so out of place with him because she saw intelligence as like the opportunity to do something with yourself and make yourself better which is why she loved like her position as a TA she worked with that professor who was really into uh there was she was really into like um helping the good of other like helping for the good of others but none of it would actually like help her at all like fighting for maternity leave at the school even though she didn't have children of her own and fighting for you know things uh, some um fair pay even though she already had tenor and she just couldn't imagine someone who uh, would do all these things out of like a sense of duty and just seeing that dichotomy between her co-workers and people who are using their intelligence for something else and then her husband and like all his friends who are just in it for the money that's kind of interesting yeah but you're right, it was very background. Like, the relationship between her and Blake was so hollow in comparison to, like, the relationship with her between her and Kennedy, which was so... Even though it was tumultuous, it, there was there was so much, like, substance there. But then his relationship with Kennedy was also kind of non-existent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, was there much interaction? I don't really remember anything there. I don't remember any interaction between the two, to be honest. Yeah, it, it felt like, like they were 
fine. And then Stella and Kennedy were the ones who were always trying to figure out their lives. And then later, um, when Stella is fine talking about it, about, you know, having gone back to Mallard, sort of not reconnecting, but touching base, I guess, with her past in some way. Again, she's still not okay talking to Blake about it. There's, you know, but she'll talk to Kennedy. It was funny. uh, There was this line that really stood out to me. They live in LA at that point, right? Or they are in LA at that point. They're in traffic and Kennedy's, or Stella's like, okay, ask me whatever. And Kennedy thinks we're only 11 miles from home, but you can cover a lifetime in 11 Mm -hmm. miles when you're in LA. It's like, yeah, the traffic's that bad. It's funny. That's funny. And also, it's funny that you remember that line because there was another line at the beginning that said, it was about Reese, actually. And after, because Reese was originally Therese, and after his transformation, it said, funny how easily you could shed her life in less than 12,000 miles or like something. Like it was, it was measured in, in, I think, a distance, like from where he had traveled, like wherever his hometown was to LA in the, in the long run. things moved around a lot right like they moved which is like so new orleans so like louisiana to um they're in new york and then they're in california and then they're back in new york for a bit i think yeah that's a lot of movement i know this is like their entire lives but no it was it was a lot of movement in in locations and then also just like timelines as well yeah i saw this i was looking at some like book club questions and this one struck me as interesting. Um, and at first I was like, oh, well, the answer is obvious. But I'm like, I don't know. I think it, it warrants a discussion. Who do you think was happier between the two with their with their outcomes? Do you think Desiree or, or Stella? And I, I use the word happier lightly because I don't know if, you know, either life was mm. extraordinarily happy. But, you know, one was kind of stuck taking care of her mother until she passed away. And then the other one stuck, um, you know living in her lives but she was also able to pursue the things she wanted to pursue like going to school to become a professor and maybe not happy maybe more like fulfilled or less unfulfilled i don't know if there's any happiness in any situation (laughs) (laughs) i mean still desiree is to me probably slightly happier you know because it feels like she has this terrible period with this abusive husband Mm but you know gets Jude out of it and then moves back and has this pretty good relationship with early Jones mm-hmm. right and she's staying with her mom for a while she was working at a with the FBI as a as a fingerprint analyst and i think she was happy there but then later she's she's a server for a while and then ends her the rest of it. yeah and at the end of her life or near the end is more like a call center rep mm-hmm. so i think it's not it's not what she imagined in any way but i think she had more sustained i guess happiness or contentment in some way like she was okay mm-hmm. you know i don't think she was as lonely as stella and i mean she was pining for stella for a good chunk of her life so i don't know if i can really say this one's doing better than the other one but, but then you look at Stella and her entire life is inauthentic. She's no one to really talk to. She's cut off from her sister, sure, but, but even her husband and her daughter for a long time. So maybe at, at the end of the book where she's come clean, I guess, or um, 
wants to talk more about her past with Kennedy, maybe following that there's a little bit more happiness Mm -hmm. and but she still doesn't have that with Blake so did you find it interesting that she in the end even though she came clean to her daughter she still didn't go back to her previous life she still like continued on in her relationship with her husband and like going to school like what did you think of that like she did have the opportunity to kind of stay in Mallard like her daughter was a functioning adult at this point her you know she could have stayed and been with her sister and you know but she chose to leave all that behind again for a second time really but at that point she has more to lose arguably she has a career now you know like she talked about how she could even get tenure and that was on the radar and i don't think you can undo something like that or that you want to you know you're so set in living a certain way why would you want to go back to what you think will make your life harder is there a hard to unpack you know oh yeah this is almost required i feel like it's one of those books where you know we're talking about it now and then in like six months we'll be like man well what did you think of that like i feel like it's one of those ones that stays with you and we haven't really talked about jude much but jude is just so wholesome there's almost like it's such a beautiful storyline like it's it's a it's a great way to kind of weave everything together but there's not a lot of like drama there yeah she's like she's the most grounded character in the book she knows what she wants she goes for it she -hmm. finds love early sticks with him like it's she has kind of like the i mean obviously her her not the perfect setup because she has a lot of things that she has to overcome but in in regards to the other in comparison to the other characters in the book she kind of has her shit together the most um but she really takes a liking to kennedy and starts to obsess about her a little bit when she realizes that her mother is Stella but it's a weird obsession where she almost becomes like submissive to her and she kind of acknowledges that as well you know she goes to her um her shows she takes a job as an usher there she would like wait for her with hot coffee or hot water and lemon outside her dressing room for her to go get ready she'd help her get changed they're trying to sort of undo what their mothers did Mm -hmm. but they're still hiding it they're the only family really they have now right extended family like grandmother's sick and you know dies soon after I don't know. I think they're like grappling at some sort of family, but but they're not they're not doing it too hard, you know? Like it sounds like they talk once in a while. It's not like they want to be best friends and live close to each other and, you know, be huge parts of their lives, but it's kind of like keeping tabs on maybe their past or making themselves feel better about connections that were sort of taken away from them. I mean, in the end, they're cousins, and, like, they didn't, like you said, like, that's the only family tie they have. Like, Jude had kind of spent her whole childhood and young adult life looking, like, kind of wanting to know who Stella, who Stella was. Like, she would ask her mother about her. Um, And Jude was born with the understanding of who her mother was and who her aunt was. She knew her her mother had a twin sister. She knew her mother's twin sister or her aunt had decided to pass for white as uh, at an earlier age and was living out her life in this in this new identity. And she understood all the mechanics of her family. Mm-hmm. Um, she understood that her mom, you know, had an abusive relationship with her husband, her father, Jude's father. But then the one part that I think was the surprise to her was Kennedy. You know, she didn't know Kennedy existed until she saw her at the party that night and made the, you know, connection that that was 
um, uh, her her aunt's daughter, therefore her cousin. And but she kept that from her for a little while, like that whole time that she was working as the usher at the theater. Like Kennedy didn't know that they were related. She had no idea, and it was only... Did Reese kind of try to keep Jude from telling Kennedy? Was he kind of like, what are you doing? Like, why are you... Yeah, Why are you obsessing over her? Like, leave her alone. She doesn't want to know this stuff. And then what happens when she does tell her that night? Kennedy doesn't really believe it at first. And then she asks her mother about it. And her mother, oh my god, she's kind of like, oh, she's just trying to get money from you. She saw your your nice car. Yeah. And is, is... you know, trying to do do one over on you. And, and then Blake immediately is like, oh, yeah, that's totally it. Like, he just goes for that storyline immediately because what else would explain it? Um, mm-hmm. And then Kennedy is something to really, like, offend Jude. But then when Jude goes to find her, or when, she, no, she doesn't go to find her. She goes to New York for, for Reese's surgery. And when she's there, she approaches Kennedy as if, like, there is no um, hard feelings between them. Which to me was a moment of like, that's family. You know what I mean? Like, she's she sees Kennedy as family and she's treating her that way because even though they didn't really agree in the past, like, she's not going to hold it over her head or, you know, be rude. She's she's going to treat her that way. And I think that was kind of a shift for Kennedy because that was also when Kennedy decided to go and wait with her in the hospital um, mm-hmm. that whole time for like eight hours or whatever. What did you think about the town of Mallard and sort of the the colorism? It's very ingrained, like how people talk about the, the color of their skin. And that was really interesting to me. I don't know if this is rooted in like an actual place or if this is completely fictionalized, but I thought that was... You know, something that I haven't read in a work of fiction before, and I thought that was an interesting sort of piece to weave into the storyline. It was weird. It was like a town living in a formula. Like, they were trying to almost, like, weed out any sort of black identity. Yeah. So it was, like, that's why they look... they. They looked down on Desiree when she married, I think they said, the blackest man she could find. And when she mm-hmm. came back with Jude, and Jude was so dark, you know, she was made fun of in a town where everybody is black, but, like, but Jude was the most black, I guess. So they didn't like her, and she was the one who was bullied. And, I mean, I mean, colorism is, is real. I, I, uh, I read a, a, an article the other day, and I actually didn't know this was a thing, and I don't know how long ago it was, probably during the same timeline, but there was a point when they were using a paper bag as the identifying marker of whether you were white or black. And if you were lighter than the color of a paper bag, you you were white and you could have the rights that white people had during uh, segregation. And then if you were the color of a paper bag or darker, then you didn't pass the test and you were black. This is so, an actual test that they used yeah, during segregation? So, so this is an article in Bitch Magazine um, and it's called Paper Bag Test with the subhead Colorism is the Monster We Can't Shed. Um, it's by Taylor Crumpton for context. And it says, so historically, black colleges and universities um, designed to educate black people in the aftermath of the Civil War employed the brown paper bag test. Only with those, only those with skin lighter than a paper bag were granted admission or allowed to pledge fraternities and sororities. This method equated lighter skin with a sense of being elite, a tactic used to combat the effects of racism. And I mean, it's a whole article with so many other, so much more information on it, but I mean, this was actually a system in place in order to judge whether or not someone could go to university. That's um, crazy. I, did, I, I didn't know about that. I didn't either until I had read that article. 
Um, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about Mallard and like what, what you thought of it? I'm curious. Yeah. Um, well, when I meant the the tide that I was seeing, I, and I think this is common with like a lot of post-colonial countries where there's so much leftover that's um, ingrained for things like things like how my parents, for example, will talk about skin color or how I was brought up brought up you know being told to stay out of the sun being told like the size of my lips my mother was convinced that you know biting your lips would make your lips bigger and that was seen as something that you know you didn't want Mm. so it's just like you know imposing these very like you said eurocentric beauty standards or skin color standards or facial features into you and how you think about yourself and the people around you and who you should hang out with and you know things like that and then also ascribing personality traits to that and it's just you know that that's what I was um drawing a connection to because even when Desiree you know marries this man and is the victim of abuse it's it's sort of like pinned on her well you know you you married this guy you didn't listen to our warnings about you know skin color and abuse and you know creating this connection where nothing exists and then sort of victim blaming Mm -hmm. at the end of it yeah associating violence with with colorism that was in um ibram x kendi's how to be an anti-racist when he talks about his whole chapter on colorism and um even like you know obviously well not just within black communities everybody you know unfortunately kind of judges based on you know the the lightness of one's skin he he says that like even within um the black community like he says they 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 still associate violence with darker skin i shouldn't say even within the black community because white people do the same thing you know they're like oh it seems like um colorism is one of those things that makes people think that the darker your skin is the more violent you're going to be um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's something that comes out in this book anger as a theme in this book there's a lot of angry people and there's a lot of ways that they choose to express that anger what i mean by lots of people who are angry is that you know if i'm there's desiree's husband there's stella being angry at you know mr dupont who's the guy at the family a family house that she was cleaning at um she was sort of abused by him so i also think that you know this like decision to leave is sort of rooted in that anger there's reese reese well maybe I, maybe that's a stretch but i think like there's anger in not being able to of course there's anger in not being able to express your personality or your true self you know in the environment you're in so just like fully leaving that environment to be who you really are there is kennedy her anger of being at having her past sort of hidden from her and why is it so shrouded in mystery and how all the ways that she lashes out and and yeah she is this like bratty little kid trying to figure out her identity but you know that's another way of being angry i'm thinking of um that line from split tooth there's so many ways to be empty there's also so many ways to be angry it seems like (laughs) i think stella's biggest anger and i'm just i mean i this is stark in my mind for some reason but 
she's angry with her family because there's a moment when she's talking about how it's their fault that they didn't choose to be white. Okay, page 169. It says, um, oh wow, it actually says the word angry. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Supporting my argument. She felt almost angry at her parents for denying it to her. If they'd passed over, if they'd raised her white, everything would have been different. No white men dragging her daddy from the porch. Another... Oh, that's the epitome of angry, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, no laundry baskets filling the living room. She could have finished school, graduated top of her class. Maybe she would have ended up at the school like Yale, met blank there proper. Maybe she could have been the type of girl his mother wanted him to marry. She could have had everything in her life now, but her father and mother and Desiree too. Oh my God, that's so sad. But she yeah. loves the life that she has. I really believe that. But she feels like that part of herself is missing. And she's angry that she had to be the one to make that decision. You know, she's like, why couldn't my parents have done this for me? And she's angry with them. And I think there's also a lot of anger at, well, not I think, there's a lot of anger at the men who killed her father, but those men were angry too. And their mm -hmm. anger was just pure racism. They were angry at him for being black. Yeah. And I think it even said um, when he was killed, oh my God, what was the line? I feel like anger was in that line as well. Wait, how do you How do you get mad at someone? How do you kill someone for accepting less than you will? Because it wasn't just that he was black that they were angry about. Um, it was that he was undercutting their prices. That's right. And, he, and they were just, that. yeah, they wanted to kill him for it. And they dragged him out of his bed for it. They did, and he didn't die that time. And then he went to the hospital to recoup from his injuries, and they went there and shot him, like, point blank in the hospital room. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're right, yeah. In regards to Mallard, it says, it, living there meant that, um, I'm paraphrasing, but living there, it meant that white men could kill you for refusing to die. Yeah, exactly. And, like, this town of Mallard, where is that the colorism again? Like, why are these men allowed to do this to him, you know? Is it the color of their skin again? Like, were they tried for it? Did anything happen to them as a repercussion? They fucking killed them. They used their anger in a very violent way. Uh, but then someone like Kennedy, who's very angry with... I don't... Like, I guess she's angry with her mother, um, angry with herself, the way that her life has turned out. She wanted to be this big actress and she's a soap star, you know, trapped in a basement for many seasons because she's not actually good enough to play a main character. Mm -hmm. You know, she gets killed off, that kind of actor. And so she's angry at the way that her life has turned out. And I think the way she treats it is kind of different at the beginning and than it is at the end. At the beginning, I think it's a little bit more self-destructive. You know, she, she'll, like, drink or she'll, um, you know, go... Like, she was at that party that night. She was angry at Jude. I, I, I don't know why she was angry at Jude. I don't remember. It could have just been that, like, she was angry that Jude was happy. And how dare she be happy, you know? Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was, like... What does Reese see in her? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so she kind of engages in self-destructive behavior. And then in the end, I mean, I don't know if she's angry with her mother in the end. And that's when she kind of starts to clean her life up a bit. Becomes a real estate agent, which is hilarious to me. I don't know why. It's hilarious to me because, like she says, it's another form of acting. Like, she has to yes. put on this persona and be like, well, imagine yourself living in this home. And it's like, oh, my God, real estate agents do do that. It is acting. Oh, in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's just the different types of personalities 
and how they choose to express their anger has such a huge effect on the people in their lives and I don't think I have like a cohesive thought about it I just thought that it was an interesting sort of experiment in showing you know all these all these ways at it I guess do you think Desiree was angry yeah I think she was well maybe that was more of a hurt because I think she'd been like holding it for so long, you know. I, I, yeah, I think it was more hurt, like not understanding why Stella needed to leave her. Because all she did was leave a note being like, oh, I just have to do this by myself. And I, I don't really see anger towards Stella. But when, when Stella returns to Mallard and they have that, you know, conversation... Maybe this proves me wrong because the first thing Desiree says is stop when um, Stella tries to go in for a hug. You know, is that anger? Is that just like just being taken aback that what? The fact that, you know, Stella feels that she can just come back into Desiree's life and Desiree's not having that at that point. She's like, you know, I've tried so hard to move on. How can you come back and sort of disrupt that? for yourself now almost like her anger has dissipated into more apathy and her presence is stirring up you know some feelings and she's kind of like whoa how dare you i've kind of moved on like i'm not angry with you anymore i've kind of yeah moved moved on on. this tied to the conversation that they had you know like stella's back now and this is the first conversation after decades have gone by and they had what i thought was a sisterly conversation they didn't say what have you been up to (laughs) it was they went straight to the heart of it right and they and they had like gin i guess and just the ancient gin yeah which is like is gin even good that long after it's probably disgusting they kind of talked about desiree said i still can't believe you did it and then they talked about how she lived you know like as a white woman and that's it and then they talked about their daughters they talked about how Stella lived her life as a white woman. And then um, Stella kind of talked about how Jude had sort of told Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah. I feel like that actually makes perfect sense. I think kind of what you said, it's it's very much like a sisterly conversation. Because the first thing, you know, I think Desiree would want to know is like, how did you do that? Like, how yeah. did, how have you gone so long lying? Like, we are the same person. We are two, um, like, parts of a whole. We're twins, you know? We're, we're the same. How, how did you do this? I think that is, like, I think curiosity trumps everything else so I think there there is that element of her just be like tell me what your life is like now and how you're keeping this all hidden and then I think it is natural to start talking about your children and especially where like Stella's intention was to go there and confront Desiree to be like you need to make your daughter stop because Mm -hmm. I can't have this anymore so in my head, it was actually going to be much more, before it got to the point where she was there, I thought it was going to be a lot more aggressive, where she just kind of went and was like, you need to fucking stop this. But then when that didn't happen, and they kind of sat, had dinner, had gin together on the porch, it was like, wait, no, this is exactly what sisters would do. You know, you're not just going to go to your sister after all these years and be like, fuck you and fuck your kid. You're going to be like, tell me about your life. Like, tell, like, let's, let's not life, like, what have you been up to, but like, Mm-hmm. What, what is your life right now? Stella already knows what Desiree's life is like because it hasn't changed. And she, you know, that's the way that it is. But I think it makes sense that that was the the overarching piece. And then the end talking about their daughters and kind of like hinting that, you know, you need to, you, you need, we need to keep this separate. The, the funny thing is, is that 
Kennedy and Jude never really did. They had that same relationship where they didn't really hang out. Once in a blue moon, they'd call, and it mm-hmm. wouldn't be to be like they would just start talking, and and not necessarily about anything important, but almost like house sisters would do. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't see how else it could have gotten. Mm-hmm. You know, like they weren't gonna air grievances at this point. They weren't gonna be like, well, our lives could have gone so much differently if we'd stuck together. That's not what it's there for, and I don't think that that would have been a conversation we wanted to read either and i don't think it would have felt real there's no way to answer those questions there's no excuses either no and it actually also kind of goes back to you know when i asked you earlier like which one is happier i say happy in air quotes like we were both not really sure and maybe because one isn't happier or more satisfied than the other they're living the lives they were meant to live Mm-hmm. And they both recognize that maybe, and they're sitting down, and they—it's almost like, and maybe that's a part of being twins or being sisters, where you just recognize your differences and em- embrace that, you know. Yeah. And maybe they, you know, maybe Desiree was supposed to live her life working as a waitress, you know, in this place, and then running off with Early later on, which is so cute. I love how <laughs> they just like left town after her mother passed away. Yeah, I love that story, but. And I think maybe Stella lived her life the way that she was supposed to live it, and it was the only way she could live it, you know? My favorite part of this book was page 336. I don't know. There are so many great lines in this book, but this one really spoke to me. And it's like the end of that section there. Her death hit in waves, not a flood, but water lapping steadily at her ankles. You could drown in two inches of water. Maybe grief was the same. Maybe that's the difference between... Like, why I couldn't pinpoint Desiree's anger? Because it's grief, you know? And she has been mourning her for so long. And, Mm. (laughs) like, all the people who are angry in this book, there's a lot of people who are grieving in this book, too. You know, you're grieving your past. You're grieving part of your identity. You're grieving the people that you didn't get a chance to get close to. And just how... Yeah, exactly. It's a stage. (laughs) Yeah, just how immobilizing that grief can be or not even immobilizing but like how much it can take over your life Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't even recognize it so i i thought that was a beautiful sum up of this book i remember that line well it was so it was so beautiful i also find i also just realized that the book starts and ends with desiree it starts with her returning to mallard and it ends with her leaving no it doesn't end with desiree i'm lying Hold on a it second. End with it Jude? ends with Reese and Jude in the water after after Adele Vine's funeral. That scene. I thought there was more there, but I don't really know if I got at it. Jude and Reese are at the funeral, and it's kind of that moment at the end when people are chatting or whatever, but nobody can find, not that they're looking for them, but like Jude and Reese aren't in sight, and it says, they did not find her amongst the dead. She had slipped out the back door with her boyfriend. They're referring to Jude here. Holding his hand as they ran through the woods toward the river. The sun was beginning to set, and under the tangerine sky, Reese tugged his undershirt over his head. The sun warmed his chest, still paler than the rest of him. In time, his scars would fade, his skin darkening. She would look at him and forget that there had ever been a time he'd hidden from her. He unzipped her funeral dress, folding it neatly on a rock, and they waded into the cold water, squealing water inching up their thighs. This river, like all rivers, remembered its course. They floated under the leafy canopy of trees, begging to forget. Yeah. 
And actually, just before that section, they talk about half the room was skeptical about what Jude had accomplished, and the other half thought Desiree was exaggerating. How could that how could that dark girl have done all those things? Desiree said. So once again, back to the colorism. It's like never ending. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, maybe it starts with their viewpoints and it ends with them and how they're not changing, but the people are, and maybe there's hope for the people who leave. Yeah, I like that. Begging to forget. Forget. And, and I mean, it says forget in the final paragraph in the one before. She would look at him and forget there had ever been a time he'd hidden from her. And then the paragraph goes on and says, they're begging to forget. It's like they want to forget the times that, you know, it w- there were any lies. I hate to use the word lies in like that context. It's not really a, a lie. Um, but, you know, begging to forget the time that you're hiding yourself. Mm-hmm. Or feeling like you have to hide a part of yourself because, you know, you were born into a certain identity, but you don't feel like that that is your identity, yeah. you know? Which is the case of Reese and the case with Stella, you know? Yeah. And maybe everyone in this book is begging to forget and trying to, like... Move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're just using lies for lack of a be- better word. Like, in yeah. that, you know, it just helps sort of tie it all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. I loved this book. I feel like so many people love this book, so I'm really curious to hear about what else everyone else thought. What did you pair with this beautiful book? Okay, so I I it's been a little while since I had it, but it was a whiskey called I hope I pronounced this right, Tomatin. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Tomatin. Um so it's a Highland single malt scotch whiskey uh greg's father had me had me try it it was so nice it i i wasn't really sure what to compare it to it was so smooth had like a little bit of peat to it um it was just wonderful i loved it 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 was uh it was a nice change it wasn't the bottle actually didn't look like it would be whiskey to me it it kind of reminded me of you know that ungava gin Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more yellow in color um so it it didn't strike me as a whiskey by like the bottle, which is interesting. I thought like I don't know yeah. if it ties in it at all, but um, yeah, it 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 was surprising when I tried it because I didn't really know what to think of it. But yeah, really really smooth, went down nice and easy. I'll have to try that. Do you know that the Sazerac was invented in New Orleans? Oh, no, <laughs> I don't think I did. I do love a Sazerac. Right? And, okay, so there was this um, cafe, and they sort of put the ingredients together, and it's, this cafe is now known as the house of uh, America's first cocktail, because the Sazerac was the first cocktail. Oh my god, I want to go there! Can we go to New Orleans? (laughs) Sorry. Please. When it's safe. (laughs) I would love to. I've been wanting to for so long. So I thought, um, so that's where I took my inspiration a Sazerac, and I was just wondering, you know, what would be a nice um, whiskey that would, you know, hold its own in a Sazerac, but then also be really nice straight up. Mm. So, <laughs> as as luck would have it, it's called a Sazerac rye. It's a Kentucky straight rye, and it says that um, it has these notes of, like, oak and leather molasses, and it's um, got some allspice to it. So it's supposed to be, like, you know, really nice and balanced and flavorful. So it's, like, a really nice whiskey to sip on, but then also hold its own in a cocktail. So if you want to go make a Sazerac, it's just rye, pecho, bitters, and absinthe, right? Mm-hmm. So so that has this really, like, sweet but sort of whiskey-forward herby flavor to it as well i just thought this was sort of a nice well-rounded flavor profile for rye 
but I, uh, funny story. When I used to work at the Hyatt, the Sazerac was on our menu. I think it was our most expensive cocktail. And I believe, I think I read that like, typically that is like the most expensive cocktail if you're going to be ordering one. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a, it was one that you built and you'd actually light the absence on fi- the absinthe on fire. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was first learning to be a bartender and I hadn't been taught that yet because it just, it was like another step up and you know, I, it would have taken a night to learn. Mm-hmm. And I was bartending by myself that night. I think it was like a Sunday night. So it's like supposed to be a little bit more chill. And this guy orders a Sazerac and they're like, I think they were like $46, like something crazy. So I was like, I oh, want wow. I want to like, I, and there was no one there to make it, but I was like, I'm not losing this sale. <laughs> I'm not losing the tips on this drink. And I kind of remembered the bartender making it before. And so I'm there like, and you're supposed to explain the process as you're doing it. And you light the absence on fire, like in a spoon but whatever I did, I guess I got like a little bit too much absinthe on the spoon and on my hands. So when I lit it on fire, the fire actually traveled up the spoon and onto my hand as I'm explaining the Sazerac. My hand is literally on fire. Holy shit. And the guy's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, sometimes that happens. Like, no worries. It actually didn't um, really burn. And I don't know, um, I don't know the science behind it, but it was, a, it, it was a very blue flame. And I don't know if that's less hot or what. But it must have looked ridiculous because my hand literally has like a line of fire going across it. It did like it was kind of oh god, like my hand's on fire, but yeah, like I didn't but have any sometimes injuries. Sometimes that after. happens. Literally the only time that probably ever happened at the Hyatt. Oh my but, god. Yeah, the time I lit myself on fire at the Park Hyatt. That's a great story. Sazerac, <laughs> and we did use Sazerac rye. Oh, okay, so amazing. That was the yeah. That, it's yeah. a it's good quality. Oh my god. I cannot wait to have a Sazerac with you in New Orleans. That's going to be so much fun. I know. And next time I need someone to be cool under pressure, I know who I'm calling. Yeah. What are we reading next time? Was it The Bluest Eye? Mm-hmm. Yes. We're going to dig into The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I'm so excited. I have it on my bookshelf ready to Yay. go. Excited. And maybe we'll have <laughs> Beloved far into the future. We'll, we'll take a break between... Uh, we won't do Toni Morrison twice in a row, but hey, we did Celesting, you know, with a few Mm -hmm. books in between, so maybe we'll reread Beloved later on as well. Sounds great. Well, thanks for reading with us. And drinking with us. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.